Hello, hello. I'm Nicholas, and I'm going to read uh, the verses tonight. So, everyone find 1 Peter 4. We're going to race. Everyone put, your, put, your, put a thumb up when, uh, when you get there, and the last person loses. Oh, wow. Dang, back row. Look at all these guys. All right. Hey, phones don't count. <laughs> all right. First Peter 4. We're reading verses 1 through 11. It says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join with them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they may live in the spirit the way God does. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Above all, loving one another earnestly, since love covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks, as one who speaks oracles of God. Whoever serves, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies in order that everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Pray with me. God, thank you so much for the wonderful blessing of your word. Um, Thank you that we get to open it up and to read it, and God, that we get to understand and learn more about it. Um, Yeah, it's such a blessing to have wonderful teachers that come up here and preach to us, God, and I just pray that you soften our hearts and open our our hearts and minds, um, to just receive your word tonight, God, that we wouldn't be satisfied living in sin, but God, that you would teach us to hate that sin, um, to move towards you, move towards holiness, Lord. I pray that you just um, speak to students in the room individually, God, that you call them out, um, and that you call them into something more glorious and more honoring to you. Yeah, thank you so much for your word. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, Nicholas. What's up, everyone? My name's Ronnie. I am a pastor here at Doxa, and I direct the Salt Company. If you missed it, First Peter 4, okay? So flip over there, uh, verses 1 through 11, and uh, we are talking about drunkenness, orgies, and, and drinking parties tonight, if you listen to Nicholas talking. Verse 3, it says this, for the time is past, it suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatries. Welcome to Salt Company. Um, In other words, Peter, tonight, he's confronting, I mean, basically the college experience, the the pinnacle of what we're we're shooting for in college. And and if you caught it, he's basically telling these Christians, guys, it's, it's time to be done with that. It's time to cease from sin. Okay, so if you've been uh, wrestling with God or just even like wrestling with your life and trying to figure out what, what direction it might need to go, 
you know, Peter might have a word for you tonight. And I was, a, uh, I was in college from 2009 to 2013, and um, the house that I lived in, okay, was on kind of like a row of houses. I, I played football, so it was like with my teammates, and we all, there was like these four houses in a neighborhood that we all lived in. And our four houses were the ones that when the football team would throw parties, we threw them like at our four houses, okay? So it was basically like a block party, and we were kind of backed up against these woods, and so it was kind of like the perfect spot. And um, I, I became a Christian my freshman year, and so I started to like be at, be at these parties and be in these environments, and I, I would uh, be there, but I would be trying not to sin. So I'd be trying to like engage, engage with what was happening there, but without sinning, and so I'd be drinking, but not drinking to get drunk, you know, after I was, was 21. And um, there, there was like this one night that I remember that just kind of, it, it captured for me something of what Peter's going to say to us tonight, okay? So this one night, all, the, all the, the parties were happening at all of our different houses, and I lived in a, a house with three other guys that were all about 320 pounds each, and uh, one of them was like six, eight, and so you just picture me as I'm talking to them, I'm like kind of looking up at these guys, and I remember at the beginning of the night, you know, like there's going to be hundreds of people coming, and I remember talking to some of my buddies that I live with that were not, were not followers of Jesus, and some of the things that we were all hoping for, just like friendship and community and joy and excitement, like we were all kind of after the same thing. And then the night went on, we kind of separated, we did, did our own thing, did talk to different people. I actually had a great night, had some great conversations, I, I laughed a ton, it was honestly like very fun for me. And then I remember when the night winded down and people were kind of like stumbling home, I remember standing in the driveway with two of my roommates, and it was six foot eight Scott and six foot four Jordan crying like angrily yelling at each other over, over some girl. And I can't remember the exact scenario, but they, they went from like best buddies at the beginning of the night to now like hating each other, yelling and, and screaming. Scott like ran off into this field, I remember. And I remember just like kind of standing there with Jordan, kind of like wondering what, what happened. And, and I just remember it hit me that at the beginning of the night, we were all after the same exact thing, joy, happiness, friendship. We, we went about it different ways. And like, this is, this is how it ended. Okay, and then I remember uh, about an hour later when I was upstairs like in my room and we, we all kind of like had bedrooms on the same floor of the house. And if any of you guys know this, we just had like a nasty bathroom. Does anybody just with your roommates, you just have a, just a dirty place, this, this bathroom. And I just picture how, how large the humans that I live with was, okay? It was just a nasty place in there and there's just things that happen. And one, one of the most recurring things that would always happen is one of my, one of my roommates, lo- love him to death, um, just when, when he would drink and he, he would just get really, really messed up, he would, I would find him calling for me to come out of my room and I'd come find him and I would sit down on the, on the floor in the hallway where I could see him in the bathroom and he'd just have the door swung open, just butt naked, covered, it, covered in tattoos and sweat. He had a neti pot on like the, do you guys know what a neti pot is? Nasty in and of itself. We, he had a neti pot that sat like on the back of the toilet and like kind of had congestion problems and stuff and just, just nastiness, right? But I would, I would just sit there with him and um, if, he, if he had drank a lot, usually the night didn't go very well and he would just be crying and like honestly, seriously, like, like broken and sitting there and, and it was honestly these kind of like cool times that we had together of like me sitting there like listening to him and talking to him and him like just overcoming the toilet because of how lar- large he was just naked like, t- like talking to me and we really bonded but he was he was like in serious pain okay 
of just, just kind of the, the damage of, of what happened after these nights of, of partying. And I, I do remember this one night just thinking, like, what is, what's basically the difference between the two of us? You know, like, what's, what's different? And I remember it hit me that, like, honestly, the, the things that were in him are, like, the same things that are in me. Like, it's not that I'm any better than him. Like, it's not, it's not that, like, I'm making these, these better choices than him necessarily. It's that when I came to college, I, I met Jesus and I found a way out from the life that, that he was living. And more than that, I found a, a better way to get to the thing that both of us were pursuing. This is what Peter is talking about in verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And so if some of you in the room tonight feel, feel trapped in your sin, if you can't see a way out, or maybe you do, but you don't know if you have the courage to take it, what I want you to know tonight is that the cross of Christ has given you a way out. And Peter, he says that the cross, it actually means like a decisive break with sin. He says we're not just forgiven, but we're actually empowered by God to change. What he's saying tonight is he's saying, hey, it's time for us to stop sinning and start living. Verse 2, he says, whoever has suffered in the flesh, he's talking about Christians now who have identified themselves with the suffering of Jesus. Whoever's suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And what he's going to do in in the rest of the text that we're going to walk through is he basically gives us two reasons to stop living in sin and two ways to start living for God. Okay, Here's, here's the first reason. Judgment is coming. Okay, Did you catch that in the text as Nicholas read it? One of the reasons that it, it's hard for us to talk about sin is because we don't like the, the feeling of judgment. Okay, we naturally try to defend ourselves, hide ourselves from it. We don't want to face it. We don't want to feel it. It's this uncomfortable feeling, and it's painful, guys, because sin is it's horrible. Sin is horrible. So we don't like to feel the judgment for it. We, we don't like to feel guilty for our sin, but we should. Look at how Peter describes it in verses 3 and 4. He says, for the time that is past, it, it suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to these, they're surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery. Okay, so as he, as he lists out these kind of just like out, out there, like very obvious sins, he sums it all up at the very end. Did you catch it? He calls it a, a flood of debauchery. I mean, if you look up the, the word that he's using there in the Greek, debauchery, it, it means wastefulness. Okay, he's saying sin, it's basically, it's, it's how you waste your life. A life of sin is a, a wasted life. And he doesn't just call it debauchery, he calls it a flood of debauchery. So literally, like, the, the word for flood there, it's like an excessive, abundant, overflowing amount of wasting your life. So it's just like, it's like putting an exclamation point on that saying, you are abundantly wasting your life when you live a life of sin. And so if you've seen, uh, do you remember in, in the office when Kevin makes the chili and then he drops it? It's, it's kind of like that. It's like he, he works so hard and like it's, it's such a, it's hilarious, but it's so sad to see this guy that he like worked all day on this giant bowl of chili and then like 
he drops it all over himself and all over the ground, right? It's this abundant waste of chili. And Peter, what he's saying here when he says flood of debauchery, he's saying it's actually, sin is even worse than that. Okay, because Kevin, he, he did that on accident, right? Like he abundantly wasted the chili on accident, but when we live a life of sin, we're not doing it on accident. We're doing it on purpose. And not even just kind of on purpose. Look at, in verse two, he says we're, we're passionate about it. He says we're living for these human passions. So it's not just that we're abundantly wasting our lives when we live in sin. We're passionately, abundantly wasting our lives. And in verse four, he says, like, they literally, like, join them in the same flood of debauchery. You could literally translate as, like, they're surprised that you're not just sprinting, running with them into this excessive, over-the-top, abundantly wasted life. And so, honestly, it's more like Kevin made the chili, walks in, and then he just chucks it at the wall. Just, like, intentionally. That's, that is, like, so to change my tone here for a second, (laughs) to change my tone, it's a helpful image and it's kind of funny until you realize that that is like literally what the Bible is saying we do with our lives when we sin. The truth is like, newsflash, you're a a human being, okay? You're a human. And what that means is that you are, you're created and you have a creator. God, he, he made you and he actually made you in his image, the Bible says. He made you with a special dignity, a value, and a purpose that's unique to being a human being. And a life of obedience would be to actually listen to God and live the way that he tells you to live because he made you and because he loves you. But in contrast, a life of sin is to basically go your own way and waste the life that he gave you. It's to abuse the dignity and diminish the value and completely corrupt the purpose for which he made you. It's infinitely more sad and shocking than Kevin with the chili, right? That's what we do with our our lives. And he gives us some examples, but one that he brings up is, is drunkenness, right? He lists drunkenness and and guys, he's, Peter's not condemning alcohol here. He's condemning abusing alcohol, which is called drunkenness. Because alcohol, it's a good gift, but it makes for a horrible God. It's a horrible thing to let rule your life. And he's also not condemning parties. He's condemning drinking parties. Okay, so not, not just like gatherings of people that are coming together to have fun in, in general. And he's not even con- condemning drinking at parties, you know, parties that have drinks at him, he's, he's condemning drinking parties. Parties where the whole point, the very purpose is to come together and drink and get drunk. And, and honestly, there's some different reasons why, but, but one of them is because drinking parties are a horrible way to actually make good friends. It's a horrible way to actually, if like your goal is actually friendship and you make the goal drinking, it's a horrible way to actually make friends. And that's one reason why he calls it sin. It's a, it's a wasted opportunity at the thing that we really want which is friendship. And being drunk, it actually makes true intimacy harder. True friendship harder, and it makes things like abuse much easier. And that's just, that's facts. You can come talk to me. I don't have a ton of time. You can come talk to me after if like you disagree with any of that, but it does. Drunkenness, it makes being able to like be the real you and have somebody accept and know the real you harder. And it makes things like abuse much more prevalent and, and easier. And so 
if you're here and you're trying to figure out how to navigate all this, just like the, the party scene of college, just a couple questions to, to ask you to consider, okay? First, is, is giving yourself over to alcohol actually giving you authentic friendships where people know you and they love you for who you really are without the alcohol? Is giving yourself over to alcohol actually helping you make progress towards your goals in life? Is it helping you make progress? You know, the things that, that matter most to you. Is giving yourself to alcohol actually helping you grow closer to God? Is it, is it helping you become the person that he's created you to be? And I, I get it. Like, I know I live, I live in reality. For every person that is still having a ton of fun, just like having the time of their life, um, getting drunk on the weekends. I understand that and I get that. But for every person that's still in that spot, I know so many people who are actually no longer having fun, but they're just, they're afraid to stop or they feel like there's nothing else they could do. They, they can't stop. They can't get out, right? And for a lot of us, the fear of the judgment from our friends, if we were to change our lives and stop running in that direction with them, we fear what they would think of us. We fear how they would see us. Hey, look at verse 3. He says, For the time that has passed, it, it suffices for doing all these things. Verse 4, with respect to this, you know, these people that you're doing this with, they're, they're surprised when you do not join them, when you do not run with them into the same flood of debauchery, and they, they malign you. Some of you are fearing this right now. Okay, verse 4 is, is some of your lives right now, and Peter gets this, right? He's, he's acknowledging that it can be awkward, it can be painful to go against the flow, but, but notice in this text, he doesn't feel bad for the Christians he's writing to. He actually feels bad for the Gentiles, the, the non-Christians. Look at verse 4. He says, they're surprised that you don't join them and they malign you but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. So he's saying they may look at you and they may talk about you now, but they will soon find themselves standing before God, being looked at by God, being talked to by God, the one who judges every human life. And all of us in the room will one day stand before God and give an account for what we did with this one life that he gave us. Think about that for a minute. And sometimes it's hard for us to think about that because we, we do, we live in a time where kind of the air that we breathe is that there, there really isn't a God or there isn't an afterlife, or at least we just don't really think about it that often. And honestly, if there isn't a God and there isn't going to be an afterlife or a judgment, then we should just eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die, right? Like we only live once and we're not accountable to anyone for it, so we should just do whatever we want. But if there is a God, and if your life is not an accident, it's not random, if you're not actually authorized to be in charge of your story and create your own purpose, if you will one day be held accountable for what you did with the one life he gave you, then you're in big trouble. And so am I. Because we have all wasted our lives by living in sin. And maybe for you, it hasn't been drunkenness, but if you have lived, 
if you haven't lived like every second of your life, this is what the Bible says, if you haven't lived every second of your life for his glory, then he will look at you in the end and say, you lived for human passions. You wasted your life. You poured your life out for all the wrong things. Okay, now I want you to look down with me at verse five. Okay, look, look in your Bibles. I want you to see this. He says in verse five that we will all give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Okay, so there is a judgment that is coming, but then look at, look at verse six. He says, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. So keep looking at it. Peter, he says in verse five that, that judgment is coming on our sin, but then in verse six he says, and this is why the gospel was preached. And in the Greek of the text, in verse six, literally it says, and this is why he, meaning Jesus, this is why he was preached as good news. So in other words, Peter, he's saying, you know, judgment is coming, but, but this is also why Jesus came. There's a theologian named Edmund Clowney who was talking about this text, and he, he talks about like the dead people that are listed there, and he says, the dead people that Peter's referring to in verse 6 are sinful human beings, like you and I, who lived and sinned, but during their earthly life, they heard and they believed this good news about Jesus while they were still alive. And then because they believe this good news, it says, though they still were judged in the flesh, though they still died like people do, they eventually received the life of God instead of the wrath of God. You see that down in verse six. And so how is this possible? You know, like what is this good news about Jesus that makes that possible that they believe? Well, it's verse one. It's that, it's that Christ suffered in the flesh. Christ suffered in the flesh. The sinless Jesus Christ, he, he stood in the place of guilty sinners and he suffered in our place on our behalf. He suffered instead of us. It's that what Jesus did is he, on the cross, he took like the full flood of judgment that we deserved for like the flood of debauchery that we have all lived. And there's a song called Amazing Grace where it says like, and like a flood, his mercy reigns unending love, amazing grace. So he gives us a flood of, of mercy. We're going to sing a song at the end of this uh, where it says, our sins, they are many, but his, his mercy, it's more. And so what Peter's doing is he's saying, hey, look forward to the coming judgment that is coming for sin, but also look backward at the judgment that already fell on Jesus at the cross and then realize that you can no longer live for human passions, but only for the will of God. Like it's just, it's just this picture and this reality that sin is going down. It will, it will be judged. It will be judged in the future. It was judged in the past at the cross of Jesus Christ. So don't attach yourself to sin any longer because it's, it's going down. Attach yourself to Jesus. This, this ceasing from sin that Peter's talking about, this, this radical break from sin, this is how it, how it happens. And when that starts to happen in your life and you start to you start to actually experience an even more powerful motivation for ceasing from sin, and it's, it's joy. It's actually living, right? Peter says, living for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. And it's one of the biggest, like, just misconceptions about Christianity, especially when you're talking about sin, is we think it's all about just, just kind of like following the rules and, and stop 
stopping sinning, but it's not just about stopping sinning. It's about starting to live, finally living. Like, and if you're a Christian in the room, you actually, you actually know something of what I'm talking about. You know something about what I'm saying. It's not that Jesus has come to, to rob you of joy, but actually give you the joy that you're longing for. It's sin that has been robbing you of joy. Hey, but the reason that, that even as Christians, we still have such a hard time believing and understanding this is that you can almost think of your heart like a compass, and, and it's like the, the joy compass of your heart is just out of whack. It's, it's broken. It's supposed to point in the direction of joy, lasting happiness, fulfillment, and pleasure. But what sin has done to the human heart is it's corrupted it. So it basically just points in all the wrong directions. And, and the Bible's word for this is this word idolatry. Okay, this is what Peter's talking about when he says that we live for human passions instead of the will of God. And, and if you look at verse 3, this is what he's talking about when he says lawless idolatry. And what idolatry is, is it's, it means misplaced worship. It means disordered love, like the, the love that we were meant to have, it's, it's out of whack. Idolatry, it's passion aimed in the wrong direction. It's blown out of proportion. Peter says it's, it's lawless. And as human beings, we were made to be passionate, right? We were made to love. We were made to worship. It, it is not sin to have desire, but it's sin to have desire for created things rather than our creator, right? To, to worship the gifts and bow down to them rather than the giver of the gifts. And Peter, he's given us this list, but one of the main idols we worship, he points it out in here, and it's, it's the idol of sex. So when it comes to sex, here's, here's just what's true. It's, it is a good desire in us to want to give of ourselves to someone of the opposite sex. It's actually a good desire, and the good fulfillment of that is this word in the Bible called love. Okay, that's, that's good. But it is a disordered desire if you only want to give enough of yourself in order to get something from them physically. And then you don't want to give any other part of your life to them. Okay, that's, that's called sexual immorality. This is what Peter's talking about when he says sensuality and lusts and, and even uh, orgies. And if you think about it like this, like, so the reason that, that something like sexual assault, okay, is pretty much universally condemned by the whole culture. It's just so, it's so blatantly obvious that someone has taken something that wasn't theirs. And that's why we, we call it assault. We call it violence. It's to do violence and harm to another person. And it's evil and it's wrong and it's unjust and God hates it, and that's why we hate it as people made in his image. But the truth is, even consensual sex, like a, a sex party, an orgy, and, and is anyone else getting uncomfortable whenever I say orgy? Me too, but it's in the text. Um, even, even consensual sex between people that aren't married to each other is still, it's a form of consensual violence. Because the violence of, of sexual assault is not just about it not being consensual, it's also about it not being committed. It's been taken out of the context of committed love. It's like saying, I want your body and I, and I don't want anything else. I don't care about your emotions. I don't care about your financial situation. I don't care about your soul. I don't care about your hopes and dreams and fears. I don't care if this alters 
your whole life and you have to raise my, my children. I just want your body. I just want to use your body to get some pleasure for myself. And even if two people basically agree to do this to each other, they're just agreeing to do violence to each other because sex without commitment always does violence in some form to the other person. And that's why it's so painful. That's why sexual sin is so painful because we're literally uniting ourselves to another human being in the most powerful and vulnerable way that is physically and spiritually and emotionally possible and then tearing our body and soul away from them. And that's why it's so tricky. And that's why the, the problem is that sometimes you don't even know that this has happened until after you're no longer with the person. Whether it was like a one-night thing or a long time, long-term breakup or a porn habit on the internet that no one else knows about, we all feel the pain from it. The, the pain of this, this violence that we have done or has been done to us or we even agreed to, it, it shows up as shame and guilt and regret. And we walk around with the scars, the memories that, that make us ashamed or guilty or both. And what Peter is saying to people who have this story, who carry these scars, which is so many of us in the room, you know what he says? He says, because Jesus Christ suffered in the flesh, you don't have to carry that story with you or live in it anymore. If you carry around the guilt and the regret and the pain for the sexual decisions that you've been a part of, Jesus, he would say to you tonight, that he actually knows exactly how you feel because he literally became you on the cross. The prophet Isaiah in the Old Testament, he says that we, our wounds, like our deepest wounds that we can never seem to fix and heal, they are, they are healed by the wounds of Christ on the cross. So do you, have, do you have wounds tonight? If you carry the wounds of shame, like this, this feeling that you're just this pathetic and gross person because of what you've done or what's been done to you or what you see in Jesus, he would say to you tonight, I can wash you clean of that. I, I alone can wash you clean of that. And I know you feel gross, but let me, let me up the ante a little bit. I would love to wash you clean of that. It would bring me great glory to bring you to myself and, and wash you clean of that stain. He says, my power to restore you is so much greater than whatever has hurt you, whatever has wounded you, whatever has destroyed you. He says, come to me, my son. Come to me, my daughter. If you carry the wounds of regret, you know, just this agonizing feeling, like you can't change the past. Jesus would look at you and he'd say, I forgive you. I suffered in your place. I've actually paid the price so you don't have to pay it. You can have a final break from that part of your story. It doesn't have to define you anymore. You can be defined by me. If you feel and, and carry the wound of dissatisfaction and frustration because sex and relationships have not given you the intimacy and the connection and the joy that you were chasing after, Jesus Christ would say, here I am. 
You'd say, I'm the one that you've been looking for, the one that knows you best. Look how committed to you I am. Look at my cross. Come, belong to me. I'll show you how to have an abundant life. There's a, a theologian named Herman Bavink that he talks about human beings. He says, you know, they're, they're conflicted creatures. We're conflicted creatures. It's like we, we are created for the glory of God, but we've been looking for that glory in his, in his gifts. Like we, we are passionately desirous of, of sinning, but somehow even in that, in all of our wanderings and stumblings around and all of our longings, we're actually all really looking for God. And Jesus, he, he told a story about this to help us get it. He, he talks about this, this son who wanted joy, right? He just wanted a thrilling, exciting life. He wanted to be a part of parties and experiences. He wanted to experience the fullness of life. And so he actually just takes his inheritance from his father and he leaves home and he runs away and he spends all of the money and his life on reckless living, drinking parties and, and orgies. He's famously called the prodigal son because that word prodigal, it means to, to just recklessly, wastefully spend. And that's what he does with his life. But then if you know the story, there's this moment where he basically hits rock bottom, right? It, it doesn't work, which that eventually happens for all of us in some way, shape, or form when we live a life of sin. He hits rock bottom and he, he realizes that like this wild life that he's living didn't actually give him the joy that he was after. Didn't give him the joy. He's miserable, and he kind of comes to his senses. He decides to go back home to his dad. And, and honestly, at this point, he's just thinking, like, maybe, like, my life probably won't be as thrilling or as fun as it was, but at least I'll be safe. At least I won't be miserable. At least I'll have something to eat. Maybe my dad will just let me be a servant. But then in, like, the great turning point and surprise of the story, when he goes to meet his dad, rather than his, his dad, like, scolding him and punishing him and making him pay back his debts. His dad literally runs towards him, scoops him up into his arms, hugs him, gives him a kiss. And just as the son is trying to, to do like his like, I'm sorry speech and like, here's what I'll do to be your servant. The father in the story, rather than making him a servant, starts to explain to him like this massive party that he is about to throw for him. And it turns out to be like a party that is way bigger and way better and way more full of joy and connection and friendship and pleasure than anything else that he had been seeking. And so the end of the story is really this son who went out into the world chasing after joy and pleasure and recklessly spending his, his life on it apart from his father, but then finding out that his father, he had that for him all along, the joy, the acceptance that he'd been chasing. And for us, when we finally start to see where our sin is taking us, when we finally start to realize what it's been doing to us all along, and then when we finally see the grace that the Lord Jesus has offered to us, when you see him hanging up there on the cross for your sin, arms wide open, inviting you into relationship, you realize finally that it has been him that you have been looking for all along in all the wrong places for all your life. And the decisive break with sin happens. And you start to at least want to do what Peter says here. Begin to live for the rest of time. No longer for human passions before the will of God. And so those are the reasons for, for ceasing from sin. But I want to take a, a turn here just as we close and, and look at what Peter says about just a, a vision for how we can actually live into and join into Truly, like, like the, the party, the joy, the, the blessing, the life 
that God wants us all to have two ways to live for God, okay? The first is, is we need to change our perspective. Look at verse 7. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And, and honestly, be short on this one because this is kind of what this sermon has been about. It's like we need to realize the gospel. We need, we need to realize that, that Jesus Christ has been crucified and we just don't have time to sin anymore. Sin has been exposed. Like the direction that sin is taking in your life, it has been exposed. The misery that it leads you to, it has been exposed. We don't have, we don't have time. Like the time for sin has run out. We know it's eternal destiny, right? It's time to live for God. We need to, to, to realize the end of all things is at hand and shift our perspective. Again, look at verse 1. He says, Since therefore Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with this way of thinking. Okay, and a lot could be said about this, but the single best practice, just like the, the single thing that you could actually like leave here and start doing for the rest of your life to arm yourself with this way of thinking is literally to read your Bible and pray and do that in community. Do that with friends. And if you've been a part of Salt Company for a little while, I basically just described what Connection Group is. Okay, this, is the, this simple, non-flashy thing that is like the most transformative thing you, you could ever be a part of while you're in college is basically just to find a group of friends and say, we're going to live life together. We're, we're trying to have this perspective shift of the gospel. We're going to commit to just opening up the word and opening up our lives to God and seeing what happens. Nothing flashy, but probably the single most proven way that you will start to cease from sin and start living for God. Because it's really hard to, to change your perspective without also changing your community. Okay, and that's the, that's the second thing. That's the second way to, to live for God is to change your community. And Peter, he says earlier, right? He says that people, what we do is we passionately run towards sin. Okay, and for some of you tonight, the only way that you're going to start living for God is to stop running with the group of friends that you have that are running towards sin. Simply, like, logically speaking, because you're trying to now run in the other direction. And I know that that's hard to hear, and you might have already made your mind up and your decision in your head that, like, this isn't an option, but I'm telling you, Jesus Christ, he, he stood in your place. He died the death that you deserve to die on the cross. He suffered in the flesh. And for you to continue running into sin is to just continue to trample on his sacrifice. And, and what it reveals about you is that you actually might not really understand the cross. You might not really understand that the cross means we, we stop sinning. We start to, to fight against our sin. We make a hard turn away from it. And it also just about guarantees that your friends are not going to understand the cross either. Because it's been, it's been trivialized. And what I just said is, is probably true for, for some of you in this room. It might not be true for, for all of you. If you're in a situation with your friends where you are actually like not being dragged in, in the other direction and you're actually being like a positive influence in that space, then you need to stay there. But for some of you, it, it's at the point where you need to, to, to take a break. You need to create some distance because you're getting dragged around in sin. But I want to address just in closing like another really important aspect of this, okay? Because Peter's vision of the Christian life is not for everyone to flee the parties, retreat to their rooms, and basically just hide from the world. 
Okay, that's not what he's been saying in the whole letter. That's not what he's been saying tonight. His vision is to stop sinning and start living, right? And so changing your community, it could mean not running around with your friends who are running into sin anymore, but it also definitely means that this community needs to change. Okay, this community here in this room needs to become a compelling alternative to a life of sin on a college campus. Because here's a question that I know that tons of you have, and I know a ton of people on this campus have, is what else am I supposed to do on the weekends besides verse 3? Like, what else is there to do? And this room needs to become the answer to that question. The answer to that question needs to become the people in this room. And Peter, he, he gives us some help in verses 7 through 10. Okay, look at this. He says, The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. And above all, he's making a shift to talk about community here. He says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly, since love, it covers a multitude of sins. Show hospitality to one another without grumbling. As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Whoever speaks is one who speaks the oracles of God. Whoever serves is one who serves by the strength that God supplies. In order that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the dominion forever and ever. Amen. And so what if you all formed a community in Madison where people loved each other rather than using each other? What if you all formed a community in Madison where people built each other up in service rather than tearing each other down, welcomed each other in rather than pushing each other out? That's the very type of community that Peter, he is describing here. So I want you to imagine with me for a minute, let's, let's say this is next year, maybe let's go with next fall. You're, you're walking down uh, Langdon Street and let's say we've got some wealthy SALT alumni out there who has bought us a house on, on Langdon Street. So we got, we got a house there now, a couple million dollar house, and um, we're having a, a party on a Friday night. There's hundreds of people there, and it's, and it's packed in all around the house. Guys, verse 7 through 10, if you look at it, that's not really something that can happen like in a worship service. Okay, the thing that he's describing, the community he's describing, is not a picture of people listening to a sermon and singing songs, which is what we're doing tonight, and it's a, it's a great thing to do. But no, what he's talking about is more of a picture of like a gathering of people simply enjoying one another. Literally, he's like talking to one each other. It's like when you, speak, when you speak to each other, he's talking about people talking to each other. These are things that happen when a community of people are coming together and living life together, kind of like at a party. I mean, that's basically what you're doing at a, at a party, like if you just strip it down, it's like people in a room talking to each other, trying to have fun and enjoy each other. And if you look at it, verses 7 through 10, it actually resembles much more what would happen at a party, but just a party that the goal isn't sin. Okay, and and Peter, he's describing a community, he says, whose goal is that in everything, God may be glorified through Jesus Christ, right? Like a group of people that so reflect the character of God, the greatness of God together, love, hospitality, service, joy. And can you imagine if, if next year, right, you're, there's like a group of freshmen that are on campus and they're looking for something to do. They've got all the, the normal freshman fears and insecurities, right? Like, is anyone going to like me? Well, I find friends 
am I going to be able to make it here? Like, do I have what it takes? Will I be able to find any, any support to like help me actually like not flunk out of this place? And they go to this party and it's filled with a bunch of people that are, that are following Jesus, that are armed with this way of thinking that Peter's talking about, this way of the cross. And, and the music is, is loud and the laughter, it's real. And the joy, it's something that you can, you can feel. And as they're walking back to their dorm room, they're walking over Bascom and they're on the far side over there by Lakeshore. They're, they're talking about it and they just, they feel and they notice the strangest thing. As they're walking home, they notice, you know, at that party, I felt, I felt built up and not torn down by the people that were there, by the conversations that I had. I felt like I already belonged, even though they didn't, they didn't even know me. I didn't feel like this, this pressure welling up in me to, to prove myself. I just felt so received, so welcomed. And I'm not leaving with any wounds or regrets on my first weekend in college. I'm leaving with some people that I think are actually going to be friends for me. So what I'm saying is this room needs to be the answer to that question. And if that could happen among us, like in a, in a college city like Madison, people would have to take notice and say, to him belongs the glory and the dominion forever and ever Amen. And Jesus would get so much more of the worship that he deserves in this city. Let's pray to that end. Father, we thank you that you have given us a way out. Jesus, that you have not only paid the penalty for our sin, but you are right now setting us free from its power. God, that our our life with you isn't just about saying no to sin, but it's about living for you, saying yes to you, living, living not any longer for human passions, but for the will of God. God, we thank you that you've, you've given us a calling, God, that you've saved us for a, a life with you. God, and I ask that as we sing, that you would, you would help us to, to believe the words that we're going to say about your mercy. God, that our, our deepest, most painful wounds and sins would actually just get caught up in, in the grace and the mercy of Christ. So we give ourselves to you, Lord. Meet us in these moments. In Jesus' name, amen.